when I first decided to start preaching on Jude, I did not think it would go very long. There's a lot of content, though. And so um, this upcoming Sunday, we're going to spend our third worship service on Jude. Um, I did not pick up in First Enoch where I thought I would at the end of the previous service. I decided we need to just spend time on Scripture instead of the pseudepigraphical content, apocryphal content. Um, anyway, if, if you didn't <laughs> if you didn't hear last week, none of this is making sense to you. Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. It's a very short book, but it, it hyperlinks lots of the Old Testament together. And it's really key because it foretells a lot of the struggles that the church in America is going through today. So I think it's really good for us to spend time belaboring what's in it and making sure that we understand it so that we are able to contend for the faith as it exhorts us to do. Um, thanks for joining us on our podcast. I uh, I hope you really enjoy it. I hope uh, you continue enjoying praying for the church and supporting the church and loving the church. And um, I thank you for letting me preach at you for a bit. I hope it's good for you. I know it's good for me. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Last week we began the very short letter of Jude... But uh, I, I preached for a while, and we didn't come close to finishing it. Spoiler alert, we're not going to come close to finishing it today, because the thing is, Jude hyperlinks to a lot of other biblical texts, and you don't really understand it well until you connect it to those stories and understand what message he's saying. So um, last week, I read through First Enoch. That book is not in the Bible. It was written about 200 years before Jesus. It describes a lot of the particulars of what took place with the angels leaving their station and coming and having children with human women, and their children were giants, and they were called Nephilim, and they were heroes of the ancient age, but they also brought evil to earth, and God needed to flood everybody out because of that evil. We talked about, um, I'll remind you of some of those themes we covered. I said we'd come back to First Enoch and read more this week. I didn't mean to lie, but the problem is, most people are still very scripturally illiterate and don't know what the scriptures say. And so I feel bad about spending time on things outside of the scriptures when we just need to spend more time on the scriptures. So we're going to spend, uh, if, if you want to know what First Enoch says, and I think it is a helpful thing to carry alongside your Bible because Peter seems to have read it and believed in portions of it. Same with Jude. It helps inform you how to read the Bible correctly, even so it is not essential for salvation because it's not in the Bible. So we're going to spend time on the essential things today. Jude is on page 1909 of your hymnals. I'd invite you to join me there so that you're not trusting me or the spreadsheet. You can see it in your Bible. Let's take a moment to get there. So we are going to retread the steps that we, uh, the, the path that we, we were on last week. We're going to start at verse 1. I'm going to remind you of the things that we covered last week, and then we're going to go on, and we are going to, to end with reading the story of Korah's rebellion. And so if you haven't heard that story before, 
get ready. It's weird and great. All right, let's dive in. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week. Of course, he's addressing that to us. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So when we're thinking of contending, we're thinking of fighting. So we're taking on that spirit that we were singing in earlier, stand up, stand up for Jesus, all that stuff. He's saying, you've got a battle to fight. You've got a war to win. I'm going to write you about that. That's what this letter is about. Why? Verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Are these people a threat to us? Yeah, otherwise he wouldn't write about it. Otherwise you could just ignore him. He's writing about something that should not be ignored. Some people have slipped in. They are a threat. You need to know what their fruits are, what they look like, what they preach, what they do, and what to do about them. That's what this letter's about. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So these people in the church, they're probably not denying with their lips that Jesus is Lord. They probably very easily say Jesus is Lord. So if they're not denying with their lips, how else can they deny that he's Lord? By their actions. Very good. By their lifestyle. And so remember in Romans, Paul says, if you confess with your lips that Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That sounds easy to people. A lot of people hear that and they go, Christ is Lord. Okay, now I'm saved. But the thing is, when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that has a claim on you and how you live. And if you take God's grace, which is the unmerited free gift of God, the fact that he deserves you, even though that he forgives you, even though you don't deserve it, if you take that as a license to do immoral things, what are immoral things that we do called? Sins. If we use God's grace as a license to sin, then we then revoke our salvation. We then give up on our salvation. It's not that God can't save us anymore. It's that we say we don't want to be saved anymore. And the problem is not that there are immoral people in the world. Of course there's immoral people in the world. We're all born evil and inclined towards sin continually. The problem is when uh, the people inside of God's community, covenant community, are just as immoral as the people outside who have no problem with it whatsoever. That is a problem because sin is death. Sin separates us from God. Sin is our entry ticket into hell. Sin is very unwelcome in the community of Christ. Uh, that's not to say that everybody in here is perfect. That's not to say that we are all perfected in, in, in love yet. That is to say that we are trying, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is prevailing in us, and we are being sanctified over time. That's the name of the game here. If there are people who come into the church and they say, oh, God, Jesus' blood is enough to atone for all sin. Sin is not a big deal. You can keep on sinning. He's still going to forgive you. If that's what you have in the church, then you have a church of death. That is a satanic church. And everybody might be dressed nice, and everybody might be singing the hymns, and everybody might be saying the nice things and, and being real nice to each other. That doesn't matter. It is a synagogue of Satan. One of the primary markers of the community of Christ 
is an intolerance of sin. Not of sinners, because then we'd have to go out of the world to minister to people. Sinners are welcome here, amen? amen. But once they come here, we repent of our sin. We renounce our sin. We forsake our sin. We walk in righteousness. That's the whole point of what we're doing here. If you do not hate your sin, then you cannot rightly love Christ. You cannot rightly love your neighbor. You cannot rightly love yourself. Verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So did God love them? Did that keep him from destroying them when they worked against him? No. No, he destroyed them. That his love did not keep him from destroying them. God's love and mercy are beyond our bounds, but his judgment never disappears. His justice always remains. So just because God loves you does not mean that you do not need to fear him, does not mean that he will not punish you. That's, that's the clear implication here. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So that's where we stopped last week. We went into First uh, Enoch, which described that and how that happened, when that happened. The thing that I lifted up last week to think about was, and I'm going to reiterate it here, you remember those angels were looking down on the women and going, oh, they got some fine-looking women down there. But hey, if only a few of us go down, God's going to punish us and the rest of you are going to get off scot-free. How about we all swear an oath, we're all going to go down, and God can't punish all of us at once. You remember that? And that's how people in the church often act. They want to go, okay, we know this sin is talked about in the Bible. We know historically it's been upheld in the church, but we don't want to talk about that anymore. Let's all conspire just not to talk about it anymore. Let's just all rebel against this part of God's word. And what's he going to do? Is he going to send us all to hell? And the answer is yes. If you call God's bluff, he is who he says he is. He will do what he said he will do. A group rebellion is not going to be efficacious at all. You will effectively condemn your entire group if you rebel against God. Doesn't matter if you get the whole world on board. God can save, he will save, but it's only always going to be according to the covenant he has established. We don't get to renegotiate the covenant. I don't get to renegotiate my covenant with my wife and go, you know, I said I'd be faithful to you and forsake all others, but, uh, you know, I'm thinking I need another wife. That's okay, right? Absolutely not. And yet so many of us as Christians think that we can come to God and go, you know, I said I would give you my life, but I want this part back. I said I would forsake my sins, but I really, ah, oh, I just really like this one sin. I'm going to hold on to that one. Once we try to renegotiate the covenant with God, he does not consent. And you just see how it works out if you try and renegotiate a, part, uh, a covenant with a partner who does not consent. It's not going to go well for you, especially when that other partner is God. Verse 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. Now that story's in Genesis. We're not going to read that today. God was uh, very aware that these people were behaving sexually, very immoral. He sent two angels to dispatch them. They ran into Abraham first. Abraham said, hey, 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 hey. Don't kill all, you know, if there's a certain number of righteous people there, 
would you spare the whole city? He bargains them way down to like 40 people. And then they say, yeah, if we find that many there, we'll, we'll spare the whole city. Well, they get there, and there isn't anybody there worth saving but Lot, Lot and his wife and his daughters. The whole town comes and surrounds the house that they're in, tries to rape them, which is a heinous sin, uh, regardless of what sex you are. But then there's also the homosexuality thing involved there. God is so upset with this particular instance that as soon as the angels and Lot and the wife and daughters get out of town, he rains sulfur and fire down on those cities, kills everybody. They are no longer habitable. And that is a prefiguring, it's saying here, of the eternal fires that await those who are immoral in this life. God is a righteous judge. He will punish sin. That's what Judah's saying here. So as he, this is a hyperlink, he says. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, that's a prefiguring of what awaits all sinners. So should we be afraid of that? Uh, TJ and I recorded a segment this last week. It's, it's up on the Plain Spoken page right now. Uh, there are a lot of people who are Christian leaders within the Methodist movement who say that they don't believe in a hell. They say, oh, you know, hell is, is maybe just a place of separation from God. Really, it's not permanent. It's nothing we need to be afraid of. If you read your Bible, that's an untenable argument. I, I wrote a, a substack about this, so I put out a, a video, and the message is clear. If we believe that there are no consequences to how we live, there is no punishment, then on what basis do we invite people to Christ? On what basis do we pursue righteousness? You know, oh, it's just love that motivates me. Love is not a sufficient motivator. When you look at the standard of Christ and how high that is, I don't know anyone who on love alone is motiva motivated to meet the standard of Christ. God gives threats because threats should motivate us. If you tell me that I'm going to go to jail unless I pay my taxes, I'm going to pay my taxes because I'm afraid of losing all my, my house and my stuff for my kids. You know, that I am threatened by the government. I say, government, here, take my money. I'm happy to do it. And then God threatens me with hellfare and I'm very happy to give him my life because he extends something to me that I don't deserve, which is salvation, which is a presence in his heavenly kingdom. The scandal is not that he threatens to punish me for my sin. The scandal is he's willing to overlook my sin, to put my punishment on his son Jesus, and to welcome me to his throne room. That is a scandalously good deal. I could never deserve that. I could never earn that. People get all bent out of shape that God's going to punish sin. You're looking at it wrong. Of course God's going to punish sin. Anybody ever see that uh, show? It was on FX, I think. It was about the teacher that turned into a, a meth dealer, seller. Breaking Bad. So the creator of that, he said it came, the whole idea came from, he's, uh, he had a girlfriend, and they're having this conversation, do you believe in the afterlife? And she said, I don't know if I believe in a heaven, but I believe in a hell, because I know a lot of people who deserve to go there. And I, I just cannot live in a world where there is no punishment for wrongdoing. And so that was the, the, the touchstone for that entire series of how does evil work? You know, Satan, he doesn't, I, I, I think I posted something yesterday. When he caresses you, he doesn't go against the grain. He's smooth and easy. Feels real great as Satan comes and he approaches you and he speaks smoothly to you. He says, we're going to do things exactly as you want, Jeffrey. Oh, there's going to be no hard times ahead. You're going to be rich. You're going to be comfortable. You're going to have everything you want. And it's only on the last day that I'm exposed to the real punishment for my actions. And that's what we're being warned about here. Those who continue in sin and immorality, whether it be sexual or otherwise, 
any unrepentant sin discounts us, disqualifies us from God's covenant community. And when you have people in the church saying it's not a big deal, that's the overall concern of this, saying you cannot tolerate voices in the church saying it's no big deal when you persist in unrepentant sin. Verse 8, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and they heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, so one thing to focus on is the dreams part. In some translation, it calls them dreamers. But pretty much every commentary I've ever said said, these guys are coming into the assembly and saying, I had an amazing dream. God revealed some special wisdom to me, and you need to believe in me and my dream, my vision that I've had, because it changes how we should read the Bible. And I'll tell you, this still happens all the time today. I've had several people come and speak to me personally in the office saying, Preacher, I had a dream. I had a vision. I was out in the wilderness. I was asleep the other night. They, they have some kind of mountaintop experience where it results in them being able to discount some part of the Bible. And I say, buddy, you're dreaming. And that's not the sense in which it means that here in the scriptures, it means that they're literally dreaming and having dreams and claiming authority from that. He's saying, nope, there's authority in place already. And if you scorn that authority, if you reject authority, then you are condemning yourself. So there are scriptures about uh, accepting earthly authority. People put in authority on earth have been put there by God to execute imperfect justice. So our, we have to practice submission to them. But also within the church, there is an authority structure. Always has been, whether we're talking about elders and deacons, maybe uh, 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 bishops, there is an authority structure in place. And there has always been a spirit of rebellion in people that they bring into the church and go, hey, why should you be in charge and I'm not? And that, you know, we're, I'm kind of joking about it, but I mean, this is a natural human thing. But as soon as you got people in the church rejecting authority, well, we're going to read about that when we come to Korah's rebellion. But let's go on for now. Verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for the slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is an interesting point here, and we can't spend too much time on it. This describes an episode that's not in the Bible. You'll remember Moses died before entering the promised land. His body was hidden, and apparently Satan came looking for his body at some place, and God's archangel Michael came and was... Uh, arguing with him about it, and Satan slandered Michael, and Michael, instead of defending himself, saying, how dare you call me that, Satan? You're nothing but a no good, you know, he didn't get into that. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. And as we're talking about, we're singing at the beginning of worship how we're called to do battle, right? We're not civilians. We are God's warriors doing battle on earth. When we do battle, it's not about me. I, Jeffrey, rebuke and condemn you. It's, no, if I do it on my own authority, I have no authority. Rather, it's the Lord hath spoken, the Lord's authority be upon you. And if I at, at any point start elevating myself as judge, jury, and executioner, that's when I'm no longer on God's side. Does that make sense? Even the archangel Michael, who attended upon God's throne, never did things with his own authority. It's all on God's authority. Uh, spoiler alert, you're not better than Michael. All right, um, verse 10, yet these people, these bad guys, they slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. 
You and I as natural creatures, whenever, if we haven't been born again in Christ Jesus, what is it that we naturally understand? Sin, death, destruction, hate. These things will destroy us. So whenever people receive the good news of Jesus Christ, they receive a foreign, weird message, a hostile message, a countercultural message. And that's why the scriptures say we are to be a peculiar people. We're supposed to be weirdos. We are ones who have received this new message that the world takes offense to. And here he's saying the world takes offense to things it doesn't understand. They slander it. They speak against it. I know nobody here is like this. But every now and again, God requires that we do something new. That something old that we were doing really just doesn't put us in a good place. It's causing us to sin. It's causing us to stumble. We have to get over it. We have to stop doing it. We have to do something new. And there, I know nobody here does it, but there are a lot of people who go, nope, I think that's dumb. I'm not going to do that. I've always done it this way. I'm going to keep doing it this way. Well, the warning here is if you keep doing things the same way, you're going to get killed. It's not going to be good for you. God requires that you give up anything and everything that keeps you from him. So there has to be a willingness, a willing spirit on the part of people in the church to hear a new word, to struggle in a new way. And if you're not willing to do that, then Satan is going to use that. He's going to put you in that position where you choose your old ways rather than the new ways. And that's not to say everything new is good. It's to say that everything new must be scrutinized by the holy people of God. So that's not, you know, are, does God reveal himself in dreams? Absolutely. Happens in the Bible, it happens today. I think that's the main reason so many people in Iran are converting to Christ Jesus. It's because God is appearing to them in dreams. So God can and does appear to people in dreams, but so does Satan and other wicked spirits. How do we know which dreams to receive as accounts of Christ's activity in the world? Well, this is a litmus test. We expose everything we encounter to this, and we see what stands and then what stands against this. And we receive nothing that stands against God's. And see, you see how, why, import, why the Bible is so important. Without this, we don't really have a measuring stick for what is real and what isn't. All right, we're going to get into the, the, the part about Korah's rebellion. Verse 11, woe to them. This is, this is a curse formula. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. Remember, Cain was one of the first two sons of uh, Adam and Eve. He got uh, envious of his brother Abel. God said, hey, you need to control yourself. Sin waits at the door. He's going to kill you if you give in to him. Cain disobeyed, disregarded God, killed his brother. Consequences followed. So he's saying there are people in the church who have the same spirit of Cain. They're covetous. They're envious. It ain't going to work out well for them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. So Balaam, that's, that's a, an Amorite prophet. He was not a good guy. He was called on to pronounce curses against the Israelites. God possessed him and made him pronounce blessing. But he was in rebellion against the Lord, and he was punished for it as well. But the last one, the, the one we're going to look into, we're actually going to turn there, says they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 16. You can find it on page 233 in your Bible. And we're, we're just going to read this story. And we'll connect it to today and, and uh, what kind of people you'll find in the church like this today. And we'll be warned not to be like that. That's the whole point here is we are being warned 
You know, how do you identify people in the church that are these disorderly walkers that are causing these harm? Well, if they resemble these people in Korah's rebellion, then you might want to be wary of them. So this is chapter 16, Numbers chapter 16. Korah, son of Izhar. No, wait, I got to set this up. Remember, Moses is leading the Israelites in the wilderness, right? God liberates them from slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering together in the wilderness. God is leading them to the promised land. Moses has been God's mouthpiece this whole time. He is the guy in charge. However, this is God's chosen people, is it not? The Israelites are God's chosen people. He has adopted them. They're precious to him. He's called them the apple of his eye. So what's, what's going on here? Moses is at the top. He's number, numero uno in charge of everybody. But you've got everybody beloved by God. This is a problem. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth. They became insolent. Insolent means disrespectful, disobedient. And they rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. Y'all ever lived in a city that has like well-known community leaders? We assume that because somebody's a community leader, they need to be listened to, right? They're good, upstanding citizens. Verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So what's happening here is a democratic revolution, right? They're saying, hey, this is like a hierarchy. You guys are at the top. We don't think you have any authority to do that. We're all equally made in God's image. He loves all of us the same. We need to have as much authority as you. That's what they're doing here. Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, that's what you burn incense in, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you're trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? So the overall point that he's making here is, you guys have been very blessed. You're in a very privileged position. Where is the gratefulness? You're, you're coveting more authority, more wealth, more power. You're trying to take from others rather than be content where you are. Does that hit close to home for anybody? It, this is a principle that makes for great capitalists, great consumers. You want them always wanting more, always striving and fighting for more. You know, it's great for an economy. Jesus didn't save us to be great consumers. <laughs> We're saved to be an elect people, and that means... Thou shalt not covet. That's the 10th commandment. It's right in there. Thou shalt not covet. If you are coveting what someone else has, 
then you are not right with God. These people are coveting more when they already have enough. You and I, in case you've forgotten, we live in the most privileged time and place that the world has ever seen. We don't have any good reason to be dissatisfied and coveting more. The world wants us to be, but that's not how we're called to be. That's when Satan gets a hold of us. Verse 12, Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. These guys would be great negotiators with a union boss. But that's not really what's going on here. Verse 15 then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. This is pretty much challenging them to a fight in the parking lot, okay? That's what's going on here. He's saying, You show up at this time. We're going to figure this out. Verse 17, each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, that's the tabernacle. That's where God would appear. Verse 19, when Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. So God is saying, I'm going to save Moses, you and Aaron, I'm going to kill everybody else. Verse 22, but Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then said the Lord to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of the wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So let's camp on that for just a second. When you are in relationship with other people who are sinning, does their sin affect you? Yes, it does. Sin is a contagion. Sin is a virus. Sin absolutely clings to you, and that's why at the end of the first chapter of James, it says true religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep yourself unstained by the world. You remember that? The world is full of sin, and we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We separate ourselves from the world. What hath light to do with darkness, right? We should not be unequally yoked. There's, there's Old and New Testament scripture. That's what this is about. Saying, if you stay close to these rebels, you will be killed. Verse 27. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new 
And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the realm of the dead. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And remember, what's the presenting issue here? It's not that they treated the Lord directly with contempt. It's that they treated the Lord's leaders with contempt. Moses and Aaron, they said, you shouldn't be our leaders. We should lead ourselves. They were rebelling and speaking evil of the authority that God had established. That's the problem here. He's saying they have affronted God as they have rejected authority. Verse 31, as soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. Do you think this was intense? This is like the most intense thing. You don't find, I mean, people don't even know. I don't know why we don't talk about this story more. A lot of people don't even know it's here. It's an amazing story. Verse 35, and then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. I think we're ending there, aren't we? Yeah, it goes on and it's all very interesting. But the key point here being God cares about authority. Authority matters. Hierarchy matters. Authority matters. And uh, we need to make sure that we have the right posture towards authority in the world and authority in the church. He's warning that the people who will destroy a church are people who don't honor authority. Now, this is a hard thing in a country that's based on rebellion against English authority, right? And in a congregation that has just rejected the authority of the United Methodist Church. This is something that should make us a little bit afraid as we examine how quickly, how easily can we self-justify. Now, obviously, I, I can justify it. I led the community in the direction that we went, and I wasn't saying, guys, we're going to be guilty of Korah's rebellion if we reject the authority of the United Methodist Church. I didn't do that, but it, it's something that other people that are very smart have said, because of what's in the Bible, we cannot reject the authority that we're under. We live in a time where it seems pretty clear to people like me that our government sometimes has bad intentions towards the people. And you'll find a lot of people saying, hey, resist, reject authority, you know, and the Bible should make us question that. Because God himself cares about the authorities that are established. And he has threatened us very clearly that if we allow a rebellious spirit into the church, if we allow rebellious people into the church, their sin will uh, infect us. And it has implications. So, is warning people a loving thing to do? Okay, so I've just loved you so good. But I obviously think, you know, I, I think it's wrong if I just go, guys, I know it sounds scary, but no big deal. You don't need to worry about it. I think a bad pastor does that. I think a good pastor says, this stuff is all here and it's all real and we all need to be aware of it. And we need to be walking through this together and making sure that we're guarding ourselves against the, the extremes of this. We need to make sure that we don't resemble these people that Jude is talking about. And if we do, what then? We need to repent. Now, I'll also admit that this sermon is self-serving, right? Because I'm the one at the top of the authority structure in this church, right? 
And so have pastors abused this along the line? Absolutely. And I don't want to be one of those saying, I am the pastor, you will respect my authority. I'm not going to do that with you. But I do hope that as we go forward into the future and our church establishes an authority structure, I hope that if we rejoin a denominational body, I hope that we take joy in submitting to authority. And we turn, learn to take joy with the blessings that God has given us where we are rather than coveting where we want to be. These are things that I hope a good pastor would say in the face of these scriptures. Don't you think Christians should be thankful? Don't you think Christians should be pushing away covetousness? rejecting covetousness? Don't you think that Christians, out of reverence for God, should also be submitting to the authority of those over us? I think all of these things are pretty, should be pretty easy to say yes to, and I hope, I hope you can. Any good preacher is going to make an invitation to respond to the word. I don't, I don't do altar calls. I'm not doing one today. But the invitation to respond to the word today is to pray about these things, to do that spiritual warring, Take, go home, Pray about these things, read your Bible, and intentionally try to build that humility in yourself so that you can have a submissive spirit, so that you can help me guard this church against people who will want to come in and corrupt the assembly that we have. God has given us a time of peace. I really haven't had to fight that hard. Nothing is saying that we're not going to have people come in and try and mess it up. When they do, it's important that you guys have each other's back as we protect the integrity of this assembly.